begin this morning by relaying to you a quote from Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell was uh, the committed atheist of the early part of last century. And in a letter to Lady Constance of Mallison around 1916-1917, he had this curious admission. He said, the center of me is always and eternally a terrible pain, a curious wild pain, a searching for something beyond what this world contains, something transfigured and infinite, the beatific vision, God. I do not think to find it. I do not think it is to be found. I'm sorry, he said, I do not find it. I do not think it is to be found, but the love of it is my life. That's quite an admission that he has made. As I mentioned, he was a committed atheist. He didn't believe in God. He was actually an adversary to Christianity, having rejected much of what he had been taught. But as a committed atheist and a materialist, he found in himself this longing for something, he says, transfigured and infinite. He even described it as what theologians call the beatific vision, the face of God. I want to ask him a question. Of course I can't, but this is the question I would ask him. Where does this longing come from? If given atheism, and if given the fact that we are nothing but genetic machines dancing to our DNA, if we are nothing more than chemicals fizzing, where does this longing in the finite for the infinite come from? Well, the early Christians would say that is placed in you by God himself, and it's meant to be unpacked and discovered as you gaze upon the beauty and glory of Jesus. My friends, we're going to jump into this gospel of good news, of great joy for all people as we seek to unpack more of what Luke is describing for us as this person who is all glorious, who is meant to be our deep, deep joy. And as I mentioned a while ago, we're going to call this study The Glory of Jesus. And this passage that we're going to look at today is a story about Jesus taking his closest friends with him up onto a mountain to pray. And while Jesus is praying, something extraordinary happened. And we're going to look at that because not only was this instrumental in understanding who Jesus is, seeing this extraordinary event, but what they heard said to them would forever root them and change them and work in them, a reorientation of their entire world and everything they believe. And so as we get ready to unpack this passage, let's pray together, because I certainly feel my inadequacy to talk about something as magnificent as the glory of Jesus. And I want you, my friends, to be able to lean in and to understand this. As we unpack this, it's going to There's so much to be seen here, and it might seem a bit academic at first, but then we're going to apply it to our lives. And so we really need to be able to to be tuned into what God wants us to learn at this time. So let's just pause and incline our hearts to the Lord once again and ask him to be the one who teaches us and who displays to us the glory of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, as we get ready to look into these ancient documents called the Gospels, and in this one in particular, the Gospel of Luke. Would you help us to see what you want us to see? Would you help us to believe what you want us to believe? Would you open our eyes, unstop our ears, 
and open our hearts that we might receive these things that are recorded in here for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me just say, my friends, is if you are here this morning and joining us and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I'm, I'm glad to have you with us this day. I want you to, to hear what Luke is describing about Jesus. On one, la- on one level, it's, it's incredible and it's, it's, it's difficult to, to take in. But if it's true, it changes everything. And I want you to, to be willing to open yourself to what Luke is telling us here. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you're going to be encouraged to to see and to savor his glory and to be more intentional in following him and being his disciple. And in particular, listening to everything he has to say. Now, as we've been working through Luke, we've been seeing this question over and over again. Who is this man, Jesus? It's found on the lips of the crowds who are hearing him teach and seeing him do amazing things. It's found on the lips of his enemies, even the kings of the land at that time. And it's found on the lips of his disciples. And the the section right before this one is a section in which Jesus himself asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter steps up and says, you are the Christ. And so Jesus says a few more things in response to that. And now we pick up the gospel in Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. So about a week after Peter makes this confession that Jesus is the Christ, the chosen one of God, the Messiah, he takes some of his friends and goes up onto a mountain to pray. Now, this is nothing unusual for Jesus or out of the ordinary. He is always wanting to spend time with his father. And so sometimes he takes some of his friends with him to go and to pray. But what happens next is anything but ordinary. This is what Luke tells us in a very understated way. He tells us in verse 29, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Now, try to get in your mind what is happening here. There's there's a change in the appearance of Jesus, and his clothing becomes dazzling white. If we look at some of what the other gospel writers say, we learn a little bit more. For example, Mark tells us his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Matthew, in his account, says Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. There's a sense in which Jesus is glowing here, as as hard as that might be to to get our minds around. And and we're asking the question, what is going on here? I mean, I think that's a very good question for us to ask. But I think that the disciples that were with him would have been asking that same question as well. But they had something in the history of their people that would have been triggered for them as well. Let me ask you a question, especially for those of you who who know something of the story of Jesus' people. Can you think of a time in the history of the Jews when another person went up to the mountain to pray and to meet with God and his face shone? If you're thinking, yes, Moses, and the time he went up to receive the, the Ten Commandments of God, you would be spot on. We're told in the book of Exodus these words. When Moses came down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, these are the Ten Commandments and the covenant that God was establishing with Israel, Israel to be his chosen people through whom 
the gospel would go forth. Moses comes down with these two tablets in his hand, and Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near to him. We're told that what Moses would do is he would put a veil over his face when he would come down from the mountain meeting with God, because his face was radiant. It was the reflected glow from the glory of meeting with God face to face as a man meets with a friend, we're told in the book of Exodus. And in that passage, I'm sorry, later on at the end of Moses' life and his journey with the children of Israel to the promised land, he told them these words, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And so when Peter and the disciples experience this glowing of Jesus. I submit to you that they would have remembered in the history of their own people, the example of Moses and the promise that Moses gave that there would be another person like him. If if we look at that word that Matthew used in his account of this, he says that Jesus was transfigured before them. I want to invite you, my friends, to, to geek out on Greek with me for just a moment. This is where it might get a little bit academic, but hopefully not too much so. The word transfigured in the Greek language is the word metamorpho. And if you were to hear that word in Greek, you would probably hear our English word metamorphosis. And that's exactly where our English word comes from. It describes the change of something into another more glorious state. And that's exactly what's happening here with Jesus. He's being transfigured before them. He's being metamorphosized, we might say. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on the Gospel of Luke, helps us to understand what's going on here. He said, for a brief moment, the veil of his humanity was lifted, and his true essence was allowed to shine through. The glory that was always in the depths of his being rose to the surface that one time in his earthly life. So this is what's going on here. We were told by Luke in verse 30, Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So not only is Jesus radiating glory in this moment, but also two of the most significant people in the history of the Jewish people, Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus. And we're told that they're speaking about Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. If we may refer to the Greek just one more time, that word departure in Greek is the word exodus. And so we're meant to be thinking about the story of God's people and that great exodus that Moses accomplished. And now Moses and Elijah are meeting with Jesus, talking about Jesus' exodus. What does this mean? Well, N.T. Wright, the New Testament scholar and theologian, helps us to understand a bit of what's going on here. He said, the reason Luke has chosen this word, not least in connection with Moses, is that in his death, Jesus will enact an event just like the great exodus from Egypt, only more so. In the first exodus, Moses led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and home to the promised land. In the new exodus, Jesus will lead all God's people out of slavery of sin and death and home to the promised inheritance, the new creation 
in which the whole world will be redeemed. What the good scholar here is saying is that just like Moses accomplished in Exodus for God's people, leading them from slavery in Egypt into the promised land, so Jesus is about to accomplish his exodus, his liberation of slavery from people for people like you and me who are slaves to sin and death and to bring us into our promised inheritance, the new heavens and the new earth. So Luke continues in verse 32. He says, Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. I appreciate this because I know sometimes in my own prayers, I get drowsy. And this isn't the only time when we're told that Jesus would take his disciples with him and they would fall asleep while he's praying. But when they become fully awake, we're told that they see the glory of Jesus, along with the two men who are standing with them. Now, there's a fellow named Philip Graham Ryken. In his commentary, he says that when they saw his glory, they were seeing something past, present, and future in that moment. They saw something of his past glory that Jesus had with the Father before the creation of the world. They see his present glory that was veiled by his humanity now shining through. And they're seeing something of his future glory when he comes again in his kingdom. I think that's helpful for us to to get in our minds a little bit about what they're seeing. And so let me ask you this question. If you were Peter or James and John, and you're experiencing this kind of glory radiating from Jesus, what kind of emotions might you experience? What kind of feelings would you have? I imagine that just like those times when when we experience grandeur and glory, say like at the the Grand Canyon or Machu Picchu or in the mountains in in a perfect view, we want to stay there. We want to soak it in. And in a sense, we want to be absorbed in it. (laughs) I think that's maybe what Peter was thinking when he does what he does next. As these men were parting from him, that is, Moses and Elijah are getting ready to, to leave Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Peter wants this moment to never end. He wants to make lodgings for these three amazing people. But we're told here by Luke, he didn't really know what he was talking about. And Luke doesn't really go into that. (laughs) I want to know what he meant by that comment. I think Peter's instinct was right. He, He wanted to stay in that moment, to drink in this glory. But the moment for doing that would not last. Jesus had to go and accomplish his exodus and to move on from that moment. I'm not sure I might be wrong on that. We're not told exactly why Peter didn't know what he was talking about there. Just simply, he didn't really understand what it was he was saying. Luke goes on in verse 34. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Now, if you could think of Scripture as having hyperlinks, just like you might look on a web page and see an underline under a word, and you click on it, and it takes you to another place. I, I think the Scriptures in many ways function like that. 
except for because they're ancient and not modern, they don't have hyperlinks in them. But if they had a hyperlink under these words cloud, it would take us back to the story of the scripture in those places, for example, where the glory cloud of God's presence would come and settle on Mount Sinai, or the glory cloud that would come and descend upon the temple in God's Shekinah glory, as it was described, would manifest his presence there. We're meant to hear those echoes when we're told that a cloud came and overshadowed them. Verse 35, a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And again, if there are hyperlinks here, it would take us to all kinds of places in the scripture. For example, if we were to click on this is my son, I think we would go back to Psalm chapter two, where it says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. This is, of course, one of the two Psalms that serve as a preface to the entire book of Psalms. And we're told that there is a royal son who will one day come and he will ask of the Lord, his God, and God will grant to him the nations as his inheritance. That's just one of the hyperlinks that we'll be taken to as we're foreshadowed the promise of a royal son. But also if we were to click on the hyperlink of my chosen one, if there was one there, I think the very first place it would take us to is the book of Isaiah, where it says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. So in hearing this voice come from the cloud, it's the voice of God himself saying, This is my son, the royal king. He's my chosen one. And we ought to listen to him. And that's exactly what this voice says. We're going to click on that hyperlink in a moment in the application section of our time together. But just for this moment, I want to listen to what Philip Graham Ryken had to say. In commenting on this passage, he said, What God said was mainly for the benefit of his disciples, however, and also for us. People had long been speculating about the true identity of Jesus. The disciples themselves were beginning to confess him as the Christ without fully understanding what that meant. But here now was an authoritative revelation from God. Who is Jesus? He is the chosen son of God. That's one of two things we're meant to see here. Not only the glory of Jesus being manifested in this amazing moment, but also the voice of God himself breaking through into our reality, indicating that Jesus is the chosen one. He is his son, and we ought to listen to him. Well, this is how that passage ends. In verse 36, we're told, when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. When, when God speaks, um, Moses and Elijah are recalled into glory, and Jesus is there. And as they all leave, we're told the disciples kept silent. And they didn't tell anyone in those days anything of what they had seen. But why is that the case? I wonder if part of it is the fact that they experienced something that cannot be described in words. They would probably sound like bumbling idiots trying to find words to describe what they experienced. Maybe they couldn't 
express it. It just, it was so overwhelming. That I think is part of it. I mean, how would you describe that? But also we're told curiously from the gospel of Mark that Jesus actually went a step further and told them not to say anything about this for a little bit. This is what Mark tells us. Jesus said, as they were coming down the mountain, he, that is Jesus, charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. That's interesting. So Peter, James, and John were told by Jesus, don't say anything about this until I have risen from the dead, which probably just added to their sense of bewilderment uh, with this experience, because not only had they seen something that is indescribable, but then they were told by Jesus not to say anything about it until he rises from the dead. And, and they just didn't have a category from that for that. But there would be a time when they couldn't help but talk about it. Jesus would go on. He would accomplish his exodus in Jerusalem, being crucified and rising again from the dead. And then they would say things like this. This is what Peter said in his second letter. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter was willing to seal his testimony with his own blood if necessary. And here he says, look, we're not making this up. We saw his glory manifested when we were with him on that mountain. And of course, we have the Gospel of John written by that disciple who was with Jesus that day. And he would go on and tell us this. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, my friends, we've looked at this passage. So let's ask the question, why does Luke record uh, this question or this event, rather, in his historical biography of Jesus? Well, remember, he's helping us to answer the question, who is Jesus? And we're getting different ideas from different people, and Jesus is leading his disciples to a proper understanding of him. And here in this event, they receive the revelation of God himself in a voice from heaven as Jesus is temporarily glorified in their midst. And they're told that this person, Jesus, is the chosen one, the son of God, and they should listen to him. So let's bottom line it like this, my friends. Jesus is the glorious revelation of God. So we should listen to him. I got just a couple points of application here. I like to see if we can take what we've learned here and, and sear it into our own lives. And so my first point of application would simply be this. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Do you remember that quote from Bertrand Russell we mentioned at the very beginning? He talked about this, this terrible pain, a curious wild pain in which he longed for something that was transfigured, something transcendent, infinite, the beatific vision, God himself even though Russell didn't think that was to be found. The testimony of the followers of Jesus is it is to be found, and it's found in the face of Jesus. What would you say to Bertrand Russell if he were to say something like this to you? 
There's a quote by C.S. Lewis. I think I've shared this with you before. I don't know if he had Russell's quote in mind, but it makes sense to think he might have. I, we have no way of knowing, but this is what C.S. Lewis said in his great work, the, uh, the book called Mere Christianity. He said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Russell's experience in this world caused him to have a sense of longing for that which is transcendent, that which is transfigured. And C.S. Lewis says, look, if there's nothing in this world that can satisfy you, then maybe we should follow those clues and come to the conclusion that we were made for another world. Of course, C.S. Lewis here is thinking of the new heavens and the new earth that Jesus himself promised. But also, we are made for another person. And this is part of the, the incredible testimony of those early followers of Jesus. Look how the Apostle Paul put it. He spoke about the light of the glory, I'm sorry, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here the Apostle Paul is saying, look, what God has done is he has taken his glory and he has put it into Jesus. And here, I think if we had hyperlinks on these, uh, this passage here under the, the glory of Christ, the glory of God, it would take us back to this passage in the Gospels where Jesus himself was glorified. One of the early followers of Jesus, the author to the letter of, uh, of, the, letter of to the Hebrews, put it like this. He said, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. We're meant to look to Jesus. And as we hear the glorious news of the gospel of the glory of Christ, we're meant to see the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature in Jesus. Tim Keller, in, in commenting on this passage that we're looking at, said this. He said, Moses had reflected the glory of God as the moon reflects the light of the sun, but Jesus produces the unsurpassable glory of God. It emanates from him. Jesus did not point to the glory of God as Elijah, Moses, and every other prophet had done. Jesus is the glory of God in human form. My friends, don't let that escape you. There's a, a wonderful book that I read called Look and Live, and I picked it back up this week because I was looking for this quote, and I was reminded about how great this book is. I would commend it to each and every one of you. But here in it, the author, Matt Pappas, said, if you want to see some of God's glory, you can look at a sunset. But if you really want to see it, look at Jesus. I love what he's communicating there. If you want to see something of the glory of God, you can see it in creation around us. The Grand Canyon, Machu Picchu, a pristine lake in the mountains, a beautiful sunset. But he said, if you really want to see the glory of God, you simply have to look at Jesus. When we do that, and God's Spirit grants us understanding, when the eyes of our heart are enlightened, as the New Testament puts it. We behold the glory of Jesus, and something begins happening to us. This is how Paul would put it in 2 Corinthians. He said, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image 
from one degree of glory to another. Here he's writing to a predominantly non-Jewish audience who had come together around the gospel of Jesus. They hadn't seen Jesus face to face, but they had seen Jesus in the proclamation of the good news about him. And so Paul tells them that we all, unlike Moses who had to veil his face, we all behold the glory of the Lord with unveiled faces and we're being transformed into the image of Jesus from one degree of glory to another. And if we were to click on that hyperlink right there, we would see that same word that Matthew, the gospel writer, used to describe Jesus being transfigured, the metamorphosis word, that's the exact same word here. In other words, when we look to Jesus, the effect of that is supposed to be that we become more transformed, metamorphosized, and becoming more like him. That's why Matt Papa said, make your life one unflinching gaze upon the glory of Christ. My friends, that's part of the invitation of this passage we looked at today, was to want to, to, want to look upon Jesus, to look to him. So let's respond with our life, being one unflinching gaze at the glory of Christ. So that's the first point of application. Look to Jesus. Here's the second point of application. Listen to Jesus. Back in that passage that we looked at, we hear this voice from heaven, the voice of God saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. If Jesus is the revelation of God, if he is his chosen one and his son, then we ought to listen to him. And if we were to click on that hyperlink there, listen to him, it would take us back, no doubt, to the passage in the book of Exodus when God is speaking to Moses. And he says to him, I will raise up for them, speaking of his people, a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. In other words, God had made a promise to Moses that just like God had raised Moses up to lead his people, so he would raise up another person, an even fuller revelation of who he is. And that person is Jesus. And God says, I will put my words in his mouth and he will speak them for me. And if people don't want to listen to him, I will still require it of him. My friends, part of the scandal of the good news of Jesus is that God himself has revealed himself in the person of Jesus fully and freely. And we're called to listen to him. The author to the Hebrews put it like this in the introduction to his, in his work. He said, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Here he says, God has revealed himself in many ways in the history of Jesus' people. But now, and this is in the first century, he has definitively spoken through his son, Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he created the world. And so, my friends, let's think about this. Each and every one of us who calls ourselves a follower of Jesus should have in our minds the thought, I am a disciple of Jesus. I am a student of Jesus. Let me just ask you this question. Do you think of yourself in that way? Do you understand that you are meant to respond to Jesus, to hear what he has to say, and to, to take it into your being? 
so that you are a disciple of Jesus. You do what he says. My friends, each and every one of us who responds to the good news of Jesus are meant to position ourselves as his disciples, as his students, as the ones of all people who commit ourselves to understanding what Jesus has to say about who God is and about who we are and our great need of redemption. And so his every command should be our our greatest joy to perform. And so the first point of application, my friends, is to look to Jesus. The second point of application is to listen to him. And here's the third point of application. Long for Jesus. My friends, if you're anything like me, you find Jesus to be incredibly intellectually satisfying. I was a philosophy major. I minored in religious studies. I've read the works of of great thinkers throughout the ages and the founders of various religious movements. And there is no one like Jesus. And it's easy to just be intellectually satisfied with him. But it's not meant to stop there. There's meant to be something within us in the core of our being, that longing for the infinite, for the transcendent, for the transfigured, that wants to respond to the beauty and glory of Jesus. Jonathan Edwards was a leader in the early New England part of our country before the United States was established. And in his personal diary, which he didn't intend for anyone to read, we're kind of actually looking into what he had to say there, but he described a time in his life when he was contemplating the beauty and the glory of Jesus. And he talked about the vehement longings of his soul for the Lord Jesus Christ, passionate longings, emotional longings of his soul for Jesus. And he spoke of Jesus this way. He spoke of the excellent fullness of Christ. My friends, as as I get ready to dive into this quote, it's, it's a little bit extended. But I want you to ask yourself, could it be possible for me to have experiences like this of Jesus? Edward spoke of the excellent fullness of Christ and his meekness and suitableness as a savior, whereby he appeared to me far above all, the chief of ten thousands. And his blood and atonement has appeared sweet, and his righteousness sweet, which is always accompanied in which has always accompanied in me an ardency of spirit and inward struggles, and breathings, and groanings that cannot be uttered, to be emptied of myself, and swallowed up in Christ. He goes on to speak of the glory of the Son of God as the mediator between God and man, and his wonderful, great, full, pure, and sweet grace and love, and meek and gentle condescension. This grace that appeared to me so calm and sweet appeared great above the heavens. The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent, with an excellently excellency great enough to swallow up all thoughts and conception. I felt an ardency of soul to be empty and annihilated, to lie in the dust, and to be full of Christ alone, to love him with a holy and pure love to trust in him, to live upon him, to serve and follow him, and to be totally wrapped up in the fullness of Christ. What is Edwards describing here? He's describing an experience of the glory of Christ 
that God in his great grace granted to him. And Jonathan Edwards just talked about wanting to absorb that, in a sense to to lose all sense of, of himself and to be totally wrapped up in the fullness of Christ and to experience his glory. My friends, those little glimpses of glory are foretastes of the glory to come. But we can begin to experience times like this in our own life. So let me encourage you, my friends, never be satisfied with superficial views of Jesus. Never be content with what you currently know and experience. We've barely scratched the surface of his glory. And what we have yet to see is exceedingly glorious, too great to be expressed or described in words. In a moment, we're going to wrap up with the song that we sing at Mercy Hill that has become one of our favorites, Revelation Song. And there's this line in there that goes like this. With all creation I sing, praise to the King of Kings. You are my everything, and I will adore you. My friends, this song teaches us, as the scriptures do, to respond to the good news of Jesus, not simply with intellectual satisfaction, but with our entire beings, understanding that he is our all in all. He is everything. And so my friends, what I want to do this morning is to bring you to a point where you respond to the good news of Jesus with adoration, to long to be with him, to long to listen to him, to long to look unto his glorious grace. And so my friends, may you look to Jesus listen to Jesus, and long to be with Jesus, to take in his transforming glory for all eternity. This is what you were designed for, and this is what you long for.